we'll begin by finishing off the section on uh, contemplation of feelings that uh, I started on yesterday. So we finished up by uh, entering the uh, subject of feeling as it sits in the uh, sequence of what's called dependent origination or dependent co-arising, Paticca Samupada, and its role uh, as a link between the uh, uh, qualities of sense, <coughs> sense contact and craving. This crucially important conditional dependence of craving and mental reactions on feeling probably constitutes the central reason why feelings have become one of the four satipatthanas. In addition, the arising of pleasant or unpleasant feelings is fairly easy to notice, which makes feelings convenient objects of meditation. A prominent characteristic of feelings is their ephemeral nature. Sustained contemplation of this ephemeral and impermanent nature of feelings can then become a powerful tool for developing disenchantment with them. A detached attitude towards feelings, owing to awareness of their impermanent nature, is characteristic of the experiences of an arahant. And so, uh, uh, say for example, in the, the Buddhist teaching uh, uh, in the Anathalakana Sutta that we recite quite often, he goes through each of the five uh, categories of, of uh, experience, uh, uh, the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, and then it starts off with the characteristic of change. You know, say, is the body changing? Uh, is it impermanent? Um, and uh, they answer, yes, it is. And say, well, if that which is impermanent, is, uh, is that something that can be um, permanently satisfying? Uh, is it subject to affliction or not? And they say, well, yes, it is subject to affliction. It can't possibly be permanently satisfying. It's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory. And then, and then the Buddha says, well, that which is impermanent, unsatisfactory, is it suitable, is it appropriate to consider of that, this is me, this is what I am, this is myself. So that uh, describes exactly what Venerable Analio is, is pointing to there, the very changeable nature of things when that's seen. It's like, well, why would you hang on to this? If it's pleasant, it, you can't keep it. If it's painful, it's going to be uh, over at some point. So... Uh, it leads towards uh, detachment and to uh, disentanglement. Another aspect inviting contemplation is the fact that the affective tone of any feeling depends on the type of contact that has caused its arising. Once this conditioned nature of feelings is fully apprehended, detachment arises naturally and one's identification with feelings starts to dissolve, such as well, I'm feeling cold because it's cold outside, or I'm feeling I'm, I'm feeling warm because I wrapped up, I'm feeling empty because uh, I'm feeling hungry because I haven't eaten anything, or I'm feeling full because I ate too much. It's like because of this, there is that, and that that uh, insight into causality. That's the primary uh, way of uh, developing uh, equanimity. Upeka, when we consider the development of the uh, the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings. That's the way upeka is most uh, equanimity is most directly developed is through that consideration of of causality and uh, what he's saying here is um, the affective tone of any feeling whether it's pleasant or painful or neutral depends on the kind of contact that has caused its arising so if it's a bodily feeling or a mental feeling then that, that sense of of seeing where it's come from helps you to develop a, a detached and un, unentangled attitude towards it. Then he goes on to quote this um, passage I talked about yesterday about the winds and the sky. A poetic passage in the Vedana Sangyuta, uh, that's one of the sections of the connected discourses, compares the nature of feelings to winds in the sky coming from different directions. Winds may be sometimes warm and sometimes cold, sometimes wet and sometimes dusty. Similarly, in this body, different types of feelings arise. Sometimes they're pleasant sometimes neutral, sometimes unpleasant. Just as, it would be, just as it would be foolish to contend with the vicissitudes of the weather, one need not contend with the vicissitudes of feelings. Contemplating in this way, one becomes able to establish a growing degree of inner detachment with regard to feelings. 
a mindful observer of feelings by the very fact of observation, no longer fully identifies with them and thereby begins to move beyond the conditioning and controlling power of the pleasure-pain dichotomy. So our, our instinctual conditioning is if it's painful, then run away from it, get rid of it, uh, 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 be um, worried about it. If it's pleasant, chase after it, grab hold of it, uh, and sustain it. That, that, uh, um, those are the, the customary reactive patterns. The task of undermining identification with feelings is also reflected in the commentaries, which point out that to inquire who feels is what leads from merely experiencing feeling to contemplating them as a satipatthana. For the sake of providing some additional information about the importance and relevance of contemplation of feelings, I will now briefly consider the relation of feelings to the forming of views, ditti, and opinions, and examine in more detail the three types of feelings presented in the Satipatthana instructions. So in this, uh, this next section, which is a, a, an interesting uh, say, uh, angle or an interesting uh, area of feeling to, to explore, uh, this is one of the most, uh, I feel, one of the most useful and um, insightful parts of the uh, commentary that Venerable Analio has, has done. And uh, he highlights a lot of how the, the way we attach to views and opinions is, uh, uh, is not so much based on ideas, but is based on, on the realm of, of feeling. It's based on, on Vedana, which is not a, an aspect that's often uh, talked about or, or uh, emphasized. This section is called Feelings and Views, Ditti. The cultivation of a detached attitude towards feelings is the introductory theme of the Brahmajala Sutta. And the Brahmajala Sutta, that's the first one in the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses. Um, so it's the opening uh, discourse of, uh, of that collection. And the, um, the, the Diga Nikaya uh, concerns itself a lot with the, the Buddha's descriptions about the points of view and theories uh, and, uh, and spiritual practices of of many other different groups and spiritual teachers of his time, so it's a kind of handbook of uh, uh, of the different spiritual uh, landscape. It's like a, a sort of map of the spiritual landscape of the, the Buddha's time. And this first one, the Brahmajala Sutta, it outlines the sixty-two kinds of views that the different groups of the Buddha's era held, and then goes into detail about all of those. At the outset of this discourse. The Buddha instructed his monks to be neither elated by praise nor displeased by blame, since either reaction would only upset their mental composure. Next, he comprehensively surveyed the epistemological grounds underlying the different views prevalent among ancient Indian philosophers and ascetics. So epistemology, uh, if, I'm, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, is the study of meaning. And so what he's uh, talking about here is that the, uh, uh, what is the, the sort of the basic um, point of view or the, the basic attitude and the sort of driving force behind the views rather than the content of the views themselves, the sort of detail. It's, uh, he, the Buddha tries to look at where the views are coming from, what they're, what they're driven by. By way of conclusion to this survey, he then points out, he pointed out that Having fully understood feelings, he had gone beyond all these views. So that, that uh, particular passage. So this is uh, Morris Walsh's translation of the Diganikaya. And this sutta, he's entitled, What the Teaching is Not. So it's uh, talking about these 62 kinds of, of wrong view. There are the 62 ways in which those ascetics and Brahmins, who are speculators about the past, the future, or both, put forward views about these. There is no other way. Like He's tried to be as comprehensive as possible in uh, mapping out the different views that people have. So, And there's 62, as I said, there's 62 different views that he speaks about in this, in this collection. This monks, the Tathagata understands. These viewpoints, thus grasped and adhered to, will lead to such and such destinations in another world. This the Tathagata knows, and more, but he is not attached to that knowledge. 
and being thus unattached, he has experienced for himself perfect peace. And having truly understood the arising and passing away of feelings, their attraction and peril, and the deliverance from them, the Tathagata is liberated without remainder. Uh, that also bears a, a close resemblance to um, a passage at the end of the discourse in the middle-length sayings, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, called the Five and the Three, the Panchataya Sutta, which is Sutta number 102 in the uh, Majjhima. And uh, at that, um, uh, it comes at the end of the Buddha talking about attachment to experience of insight. And uh, the Buddha says, uh, it might be that some, some person is meditating and their mind is is bright and clear and, and free of obscurations. And then in that mind of that person, there arises the thought, uh, I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. And then he says, but that the very uh, uh, fact that the mind frames the experience in that way demonstrates the clinging that is still there. Yeah, I, And then in, in uh, the Wisdom Publications edition, the I is sort of in italics and underlined, like I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbāna. And then uh, <clears throat> the, the Buddha says, uh, seeing this and understanding this, uh, then uh, the, the, you know, the wise, noble disciple will recognize the origination and the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in re uh, relation to the six bases of contact, the six senses. And that's the same what uh, Morris Walsh uh, translates here as the attraction, that's the asada, or the gratification, asada, the peril, the adinava, or the, the liability, the, the downside, the danger. And deliverance, that's nisarana, uh, the, um, uh, the, or the, the escape, as Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Nyanamoli have it. Uh, so you're seeing the arising of, of uh, sense experience, the passing away of sense experience, seeing that those are impermanent. And the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the, the interest in something that is uh, attractive or the, the, the compelling nature of a sense object, the gratification, the danger, that if that's uh, attached to, either hated and feared or, or grasped and, and tried to uh, be, say, uh, possessed, seeing the, the gratification and the danger, and then the escape through seeing that um, the empty nature uh, insubstantial and, and hollow nature of, of sense experience uh, and the uh, lack of any abiding self or the, the unownability of any experience that is what leads to the deliverance of the nisarana, the, the escape so that uh, the, he's talking about the uh, this in relationship to, to views so as he says um, uh, so rather than sense contact, as such, as, a, as in the Panchataya Sutta, here it's talking about Vedana, or feeling, but he says he uses exactly the same phrase. Being thus unattached, he has experienced for himself perfect peace, and having truly understood the arising and passing away of feelings, their attraction and peril and the deliverance from them, the Tathagata is liberated without remainder. So it's uh, he has... Uh, in that that particular phrase, this very interesting way of of naming feeling, like uh, the feeling of of liking or the feeling of disliking, that's the root cause of attachment to views. Like you like a view or you dislike a view, you agree with a view or you disagree with a view. It's the feeling of agreeing or disagreeing that is driving when what uh, the the, uh, the mind say approves of or disapproves of. And then, as Venerable Analia goes into, then that. That's then backed up by the thinking mind. And then uh, he follows it up by saying, When monks or monk understands as they really are the arising and passing away of the six bases of contact, their attraction and peril and the deliverance from them, he knows that which goes beyond all these views. So again, that, that's very close to that same passage in the Panchataya Sutta. Knowing the gratification, the, the, the danger and the escape with respect to the six senses, i.e. nose, tongue, body, and mind, and the deliverance from them, he knows that which goes beyond all these views. So when the mind is able to know, oh, this is a view. <laughs> this is a view that is approved, or this is a view that is disapproved of, knowing that that's a view, then there's, right there, there is the quality of, of liberation. 
So any particular questions or comments? He goes into this in quite a bit more detail, but uh, is that uh, theme something that's that's meaningful? Can Is that explained clearly enough? Any questions? Don't be shy. These readings are for you, not for me. Yes, HK. Like a, in, in the Amara Vachin, like a living uh, like a daily life, I find my view quite wrong many, many, many times. And sometimes it feels scary, like a scared. I feel very scared because of, like a, I, because there is no my, like a, I cannot find my view right. So sometimes it feels really scary because it, feels like I'm losing my identity or like a, something that I can hold on to. So like, a, so, yeah, sometimes I feel this kind of a, like a very fear about finding my view wrong, like a many, many, many times. Well, that's, that's not a bad thing um, because uh, it also demonstrates how we tend to take refuge in our views and opinions. We take refuge in our, uh, our, um, say our memories, our ideas, uh, and then when those get challenged or they're seen as being partial or imperfect, then um, it's threatening to the ego, but also with, uh, you know, <coughs> the, the Buddha doesn't just take away our support in terms of uh, say, encouraging that uh, non-investment in the sense world, but what he you, we have taking refuge um, in Buddha Dhamma and Sangha as the sort of the that's the counterpart, that's the sort of the other side of the equation, if you like. That he doesn't just leave us out in the middle of the traffic, as they say. <laughs> like, uh, but uh, in a way, the counterpart to Anicca Dukkha Anatta is Buddha Dhamma Sangha, so that the 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 practice is designed to um, help the the heart to let go of its refuges that don't work. What they call false refuges. There's uh, one of the the chants that um, we haven't started doing it here, but it's in the chanting book of full, uh, true and false refuges. That the false refuges is my opinions, my ideas, my memories, my my uh, li- my likes and dislikes. Those are, are refuges, but they're false ones. They, they, so that the teaching is encouraging us to let go of those. But then the true refuges uh, in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha—the quality of uh, awareness, the reality of the way things are—and then refuge in, in Sangha, as in the um, uh, the inclination, the the, uh, uh, the say the um, commitment to wholesome action. Those are the things that are reliable. So as the the sort of ego-centered control is is let go of, then there is still that which can be relied on. So it's a, it, along with that letting go, there's a, a development of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha as the refuges that that, that provide a genuine uh, say support and security. So to continue, uh, the intriguing feature of the Buddha's approach is that. His analysis focused mainly on the psychological underpinnings of views rather than their content. So again, this is about the epistemology or the, 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 the kind of feeling backing up the view, liking and disliking, rather than the details of the, of the, of the content of the, of the view. Because of this approach, he was able to trace the arising of views to craving, tanha, which in turn arises dependent on feeling. Conversely, by fully understanding the role of feeling as a link between contact and craving, in the dependent origination, the view-forming process itself can be transcended. So like once you understand that, oh, I, uh, <clears throat> my grasping of this particular attitude or these ideas, that's because... Uh, I, when I hear that that view, uh, I get a, a pleasant feeling. Uh, yes, so it's the grasping that yes, that's what is leading to this. So seeing the mind doing that and taking investment or, or objecting to something—that's too. That's totally stupid. That's totally wrong. How can he think that? That you enjoy that person being wrong. You know, you we. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it's um, something we uh, we enjoy criticizing and and, and uh, blaming or complaining about others. 
So to to know, oh, that's it's a a feeling that's being grasped at. That's what's happening here. Then that takes away the fuel from that that habit. Conversely, by fully understanding the role of feeling as a link between contact and craving, the view-forming process itself can be transcended. The Pasadika Sutta explicitly presents such transcendence of views as an aim of Satipatthana contemplation. That's in the Diganikaya as well. Thus the second Satipatthana, contemplation of feelings, has an intriguing potential to generate insight into the genesis of views and opinions. Sustained contemplation will reveal uh, the fact that feelings decisively influence and color subsequent thoughts and reactions. And uh, then he's, uh, uh, he quotes, or he's referring there to one of the most well-known meditation suttas called the, uh, the Sweet Morsel or the Honey Ball, the Madhupindika Sutta. And uh, that's in the Sutta number 18 in the Middle Length Discourses, and it, which highlights how conflict and struggle and and uh, both physical, uh, both mental and verbal and physical, depends on the grasping of uh, of perceptions. How the mind takes hold of of, uh, of a feeling and perception, and uh, and uh, how thoughts then uh, get formed and run away um, with a with a particular liking or disliking, a reactive string of associations called papancha or conceptual proliferation. So, uh, when he says that uh, that. Um, here, uh, sustained contemplation will reveal the fact that feelings decisively influence and color subsequent thoughts and reactions. He is uh, is referring to that that uh, that string of of uh, of say reactive processes that are described in the, in that uh, um, Madhupindika Sutta, where you have sense contact gives rise to a feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. Then following off on the feeling, there is sanya, or the initial sense uh, designation. Uh, before thought, the, the mind recognizes blue color, uh, verbal sound. And then uh, from the sanya, the perceptual sign, it gives rise to thought, the, the, the verbal thought that, because I speak English, I say blue, carpet. Uh, and then from the thought, vitaka, that leads to papancha, like, well, this carpet's been there a long time. I think it was 1991 they put that in. Isn't it about time we had a new carpet? Well, actually, it's all right. It's doing well. <laughs> and so that's papancha. And then papancha leads to uh, papancha sanya sankar, which is like the multiplicity of thoughts and feelings that basically, uh, in summary, mean there's a me here and there's a world out there, and it's the tension between the two. Either the world is good and I want more of it, and how can I keep it? Or the world is bad and wrong, and how can I get away from it? How can I change it? How can I stop it being that way? So that that uh, that uh, reactive process arising from sense contact leads to this sense of alienation, me uh, 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 as an alienated um, object, uh, an alienated subject from an objective world in some state of, of tension. And the Buddha says that's what gives rise to uh, the taking up of weapons, to the um, uh, to uh, the uh, argument and quarrels to uh, to conflict between beings and harsh words and an injury being carried out. In view of this conditioning role of feeling, the supposed supremacy of rational thought over feelings and emotions turns out to be an illusion, which of course is a major feature of Western thinking. <laughs> the Logic and thought often serve merely to rationalize already existing likes and dislikes, which in turn are conditioned by the arising of either pleasant or unpleasant feelings. The initial stages of the perceptual process, when the first traces of liking and disliking appear, are usually not fully conscious, and their decisive influence on subsequent evaluations often passes undetected. So that's a, a triumph of English understatement, even though he's German. <laughs> So this is an area I talk about a lot because um, it's the kind of um, uh, the, uh, people argue with each other, particularly if you're in the religious field. People have strong views and opinions. It's the same in the academic world. You, you know, the people can have, uh, say, um, 
their field of study might be some sort of refined area of philosophy, uh, and they're sort of talking about the, the the nature of the Tathagata or the the, uh, you know, the various different treaties on treatises on the nature of ultimate reality or the qualities of nibbana or uh, the the nature of Buddha mind and such like. And so you can have very, very high-minded, or in, the, in sort of Christian theology or, or, the, or Islam, you can have extremely high-minded and refined spiritual principles, but the basic relationship, of the, 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 the emotional tone of the argument is like two eight-year-olds fighting in the school playground. <laughs> Even though the, the language in the, in the um, academic papers and, uh, or conferences and such like, it's all cast in this very sort of thorough and well uh, annotated um, uh, descriptions with all sorts of quotes and, and um, uh, scriptural backup for this and that. But basically it's like, yeah, uh, my dad's bigger than, my dad's tougher than your dad, you know. <laughs> no, he isn't. My, dad's, my dad will de- beat your dad up. And, and it's the kind of squabbling eight-year-olds in the, in the playground uh, is the, the mental state. There was a really great uh, article I often quote uh, I saw in the San Francisco Chronicle which is a very uh, big and well-developed science section. And there was this long, long piece about these two different groups of astronomers that were trying to make certain measurements about the, the speed of the expansion of the, the, uh, the universe. And they were sort of racing with each other to, to make these measurements. Uh, and so there's one set down in Australia and the other people were out in South America or out in the Pacific these two different telescopes and, and they were interviewing one of the the, the leaders of the research teams and he made this very uh, astute comment he said um, uh, you know they say that gravity is the most powerful force in the universe but I disagree professional jealousy is the most powerful force in the universe I thought, good, good point <laughs> well done <laughs> and so that uh, and this is exactly one uh, the area that uh, I think Venerable Analio points to skillfully and it was a major concern of the Buddha because he could see that even if a philosophy is very well worked out or very very true the very fact that the mind grasps it and says only this is true everything else is wrong you know you're a fool you're an idiot how can you say that he said looking at the way you're picking it up you're calling the other person a fool or an idiot you're you're attacking the other with verbal daggers it's like look look what are you doing to yourself and the way you pick up that 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 view and so and sometimes it's the, the more refined the philosophy, the more vicious and <laughs> bloody and nasty the uh, uh, the the, the uh, reactions are. To the point of you know, the have sort of religious um, uh, wars and suppression. There's Sunnis and the Shiites you know, going to war with each other for centuries and centuries. The Mahayanas and Theravadans uh, uh, going at each other, not so much with bloodshed, but that uh, uh, the, the kind of harshness and viciousness of a fight can be uh, proportional to the refinement of the, the objects being fought about. So the, this uh, principle that the Buddha points to, that uh, if the, the mind is saying, only this is true, everything else is wrong, that's a clear warning sign, like, wait, 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 back off. <laughs> and so this is, relates to the whole manner in which views are, are held. Um, and as Lumpur Samedo put it very succinctly, he said, it's the difference between right view and righteous views. So uh, I know many of you don't have English as your first language, but right is not the same as righteous. <laughs> so the English word righteous, um, even though the dictionary definition is that it means uh, it's in accordance with reality, the way the word is used is a sort of banner-waving, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, um, and there's a, uh, okay, uh, a, a very strong sense of, of self, of I, I mean, I'm right, you're wrong, this is true, that's false. So that sense of, uh, and in America, uh, righteous indignation is a, a, a praiseworthy mind state. Like you're encouraged, it's good to be righteously indignant. You're praised and rewarded for having righteous indignation. If you, and if you don't, then you are um, you're criticized or blamed. Even... Uh, there was a popular bumper sticker there in the U.S., which is, "If you're not angry, you're not paying attention." <laughs> really, I'm not, and it's not ironic. That's not an ironic to a, in, Brit, in Britain. That would be a, that would be oh ha ha ha, you know, nice joke. In America, they mean it. It's not ironic. They mean it. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Like, you should be upset. If you're paying attention, you should be upset. 
get angry. That's your obligation. And if you're not angry, you're, you know, you're, you're failing in your duty. So you can see some of the reasons why they have problems in the U.S. So this is what the, the, and the Buddha is aiming at, is the way in which views are picked up. So the difference between right view and righteous views. Considered from a psychological perspective, feeling provides quick feedback during information processing as a basis for motivation and action. In the early history of human evolution, such rapid feedback evolved as a mechanism for surviving dangerous situations when a split-second decision between flight or fight had to be made. Like, is it dangerous? Get out of the way. Or, or uh, is it threatening? Uh, do I attack? Do I get out of the way? Also, is it desirable? You know, am I, can I get it first before the other one gets it? <laughs> so he only talks about negative things, but it's also to do with seizing opportunity, like getting, in, getting in first when the, the, who spots the, the bush with the berries on it, or the, the, the animal to, to be caught. Such decisions are based on the evaluative influence of the first few moments of perceptual appraisal, during which feeling plays a prominent role. And in that, uh, uh, the Buddha's descriptions of experience contact feeling. It's before thought. It's even before perception. So that in that Madhupindika Sutta, goes contact, feeling, perception. Pasa, Vedana, Sanya, Vitaka. So you have the... The Vedana, the attractive, unattractive, neutral, is there before you've even thought red, blue, uh, loud, quiet, uh, smells good, smells bad. That the, 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 the feeling, the Vedana, is there before the Sanya, before there is even the kind of categorizing of what the experience is, so which is uh, very notable, and that's what he's speaking about here. That's how we, and it's useful, and that's why it's experienced that way. The ancestors who didn't have that didn't survive. <laughs> they didn't outcompete the others. So that's why we still have things arranged that way, because we're the inheritors of the ones for whom that worked. You can follow that. Outside such dangerous situations, however, in the comparatively safe, average living situation in the modern world, this survival function of feelings can sometimes produce inadequate and inappropriate reactions. Again, that's triumph of understatement. <laughs> like, uh, I, I see it, I want it. Yes, I see it, I like it, I want it. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and the marketing processes of the world uh, <laughs> work hard to uh, bring that about. And uh, as, a, as a famous uh, ad advert from uh, American Express many years ago uh, for their credit cards, uh, take the waiting out of wanting was the slogan. And now, with uh, with uh, everyone having smartphones, you can see, want, get within seconds. Now, but you can, uh, if you've got a, a reasonable uh, uh, Wi-Fi connection or a good, you can get a good signal. See, want, get within seconds. So it, there's almost no waiting between gratification. Contemplation of feelings offers an opportunity to bring these evaluative and conditioning functions back into conscious awareness. So you can, oh look, that's his disliking, fearing. Oh, his liking, wanting. Clear awareness of the conditioning impact of feeling can lead to a restructuring of habitual reaction, sorry, can lead to a restructuring of habitual reaction patterns that have become meaningless or even detrimental. In this way, emotions can be deconditioned at their point of origin. Without such deconditioning, any effective bias, being the outcome of the initial evaluation triggered by feeling, can find its expression in apparently well-reasoned objective opinions and views. I'll read that again just in case you didn't get it. Without such deconditioning, any affective bias, that means you hear someone saying something and you go, and you go yes, right, or no, that's stupid, that's wrong. Any affective bias, being the outcome of the initial evaluation triggered by feeling, so that you, you're hearing uh, uh, something that the mind says yes or no, it can find its expression in apparently well-reasoned objective views and opinions. You're not aware that the mind has said, I like that or I dislike that, 
and your your thinking mind is already wading in to, to back up why you why you agree with it or why you disagree with it or what's wrong with it. In contrast, a realistic appraisal of the conditional dependence of views and opinions on the initial evaluative input provided by feeling uncovers the affective attachment underlying personal views and opinions. This dependency of views and opinions on the first evaluative impact of feeling is a prominent cause of subsequent dogmatic adherence and clinging. So, and that's what the Buddha points to in the, the Brahmajala Sutta, that the, how the mind how the mind approves or disapproves of certain views, and then uh, joining in with them, picking them up, then comes up with thinking to, to, to back those up. In ancient India, the Buddha's analytical approach to views formed a striking contrast to the prevalent philosophical speculations. He dealt with views by examining their affective underpinnings. For the Buddha, the crucial issue was to uncover the psychological attitude underlying the holding of any view, since he, he clearly saw that holding a particular view is often a manifestation of desire and attachment. An important aspect of the early Buddhist conception of right view is therefore to have the right quote-unquote attitude towards one's beliefs and views. The crucial question here is whether one has developed attachment and clinging to one's own views, which often manifests in heated arguments and disputation. The more right view can be kept free from attachment and clinging, the better it can unfold its full potential as a pragmatic tool for progress on the path. That is, right view as such is never to be given up. In fact, it constitutes the culmination of the path. What is to be given up is any attachment or clinging in regard to it. And so that, that um, uh, the, um, uh, as he says, the standard formulation of right view in the discourses is in fact directly concerned with attachment and clinging formulated by way of the Four Noble Truths. This scheme of the Four Noble Truths is then applied to the views themselves. So often when uh, the Buddhist said, what is right view? Uh, and he said that you know, right view is uh, seeing the Four Noble Truths. And people can understand that or read that as meaning, oh, you're supposed to believe that the Four Noble Truths are valid. And so like, that's a set of opinions to hang on to and say, this is true. The, you know, the Four Noble Truths are true and everything, everything else is wrong. That, that's not what is meant. What is meant is instead that the Four Noble Truths is a, a, like a lens through which views are to be examined. Right? And the, the, um, the Four Noble Truths speak about if there is clinging, if there is craving and clinging, upadana, then that will give rise to suffering. So if you're looking at views through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, that if a view is clung to, it will produce suffering. If the clinging is let go of, then the suffering will end. That's, uh, that's uh, say, giving you a means with which to hold on, uh, to pick up and relate to the views that, that arise. So it's not just like another opinion uh, amongst other opinions but rather it's, it's a tool to examine the attitude and, and to develop a skillful attitude towards uh, all views. So, that, and that's something that, that's very often uh, misunderstood, or like uh, people say, well, you know, we're just sort of picking up the Buddha's opinions instead of somebody else's opinions, but how do we know that that's correct? But what the, the encouragement to use the Four Noble Truths is about is say, it's like, look at the way in which a view is related to is the mind saying, you know, this is mine, this is true, and it's uh, and everything else is wrong? Is it attached to? Is it clung to? Or is it being simply picked up and applied without identification, without grasping, without creating the causes of, uh, of, of uh, clinging and, and suffering? Yes? In the choice of words, the noble truth, then somewhat misleading or incorrect? Because naturally you would make a prediction if you hear these are the four noble truths, the mind makes prediction, our truth equals so and so. Yes. And so with this attitude, you start moving. I said, 
asset reading. So it's well, it's an interesting point yeah, because um, Stephen Batchelor uh, <coughs> was uh, uh, he has a pet theory, which is that. Uh, his, his suspicion is that the Buddha didn't use that particular terminology, first of all. The, the term truth, sacha, as like a, a sort of uh, a spiritual principle, like a metaphysical principle, is very rare. So sacha, normally in the suttas, it means honesty, truthfulness. And so truth, as a sort of abstract quality, uh, uh, is... Um, I think he, he went through the suttas and he, he kind of totted up the... Uh, is, you can do it with word search quite easily nowadays. But <laughs> it's something like... Uh, there's something like 530 times in the, in the Pali Canon that the word sacha is used as, as a word on its own or as part of a compound. And something like 480 of those are in the sacha sangyutta, in the connected discourses about the truths, and that, including the Four Noble Truths. So... Uh, he he contends that it's uh, contends. <laughs> he, he proposes that that it's more it's more uh, accurate to talk about the four noble tasks rather than truths. And if you and which and uh, and he was quite surprised that that was something that uh, Lumpur Sumedha also emphasised because uh, you have with each of the truths quote unquote you have a way in which it is handled. Like, and when we recite the Dhammachaka Sutta. So, first noble truth, dukkha parinyayanti, it is to be understood or it is to be apprehended. That's a direct line, oh, this is dukkha. So the task in relationship to dukkha is to, to apprehend it, to meet it, to, uh, to, understand, to acknowledge it. And then the, the task for the dukkha samudaya, uh, the origin of dukkha, is... Pahatabanti, uh, it is to be let go of. Pahanati is to, to let go of, or to relinquish. It needs to be let go of. That's the task in relationship to that. Dukkha Samudaya. Then uh, to, to let go of craving. And then Dukkha Niroda, the task is to realize. Satchikatabanti, to, to know or to, to fully uh, awaken to. Uh, and then the, the task in relationship to the, 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 uh, the path, Magga, is. Bhavetabanti, it is to be cultivated, it is to be developed. So I thought that had a lot of merit to it. Again, talking about editing in the scriptures uh, yesterday, that uh, it seems that it, uh, what his pet theory was, was that there's, and what you get in, in, religious, in the religious world is a kind of religious arms race. So one spiritual group comes up with a particular philosophy or theory, and then you get some royal patronage, and then the the uh, the king comes along and says, "Oh, I really like what you got to say. Can I build you a new temple? Yeah, can I give you some land? Can I, you know, can I sponsor the, uh, you know, the the building of a few stupas for you?" And you go, oh, yes, indeed, your Majesty. So then the other group say, "Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> they got some patronage. Okay. Well, we better come up with something that uh, sounds just as good or even better." And so, uh, and this uh, I feel is quite, is quite. You can see it quite a, a, a few in a few ways over the years with the different aspects of, um, of the Buddhist world uh, in India and the rising of Mahayana and then Tantra and Vajrayana in the Indian philosophical pool and how the the Brahmins would sort of come up with a particular uh, philosophy and then the, the another. And the Buddhists would come up with a comparable one, and then the Buddhists would come up with another, and the Brahmins would crank it up. So there's a sign of spiritual arms race going on. So uh, uh, so Stephen's thought, which I thought was kind of interesting, was that uh, his suspicion is that some of the other groups uh, in that time started to talk about sacha, about truth, or that they uh, and that uh, they were using that kind of language. And then that got woven in as, uh, oh yeah, we've got the truth too. Yeah, that's that's part of our thing. Yeah, we have that, because it, it, uh, it in a way, it doesn't quite match the practicality of the Four Noble Truths teaching. It's like a, it's a method of training. It's not a thing to believe in. It's, uh, it's not like an abstract. It's a very practical sort of user's guide. Like, okay, uh, this is your new Toyota. Yeah, this is how to operate it. It's like a user's manual. For, for living skillfully. So I thought that had quite a bit of merit to it. Again, I don't have a lot of um, 
I haven't written any papers about it, but it, 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 makes, it makes sense. And also the fact that in the scriptures, that um, it is true that, uh, that sacha is generally means honesty. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's like a truthfulness rather than truth as an abstract sort of metaphysical quality. Okay, to continue. In the context of actual meditation practice, the presence of right view finds its expression in a growing degree of detachment and disenchantment with conditioned phenomena, owing to a deepening realization of the truth of dukkha, its cause, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. Such detachment is also reflected in the absence of desires and discontent, as Abhijja Dhammanasa stipulated in the Satipatthana definition. And in, the, and in the instruction to avoid, quote, clinging to anything in the world, unquote, mentioned in the Satipatthana refrain. Then he goes on to speaking about pleasant feeling and the importance of joy. The conditioning role of pleasant feelings in leading to likes and, and eventually to dogmatic attachment has some far-reaching implications. But this does not mean that all pleasant feelings have simply to be avoided. So the fact that you hear uh, an, op uh, an opinion or a view and you say yes, and you, or that, that uh, you hear the Buddha's teaching, or like H.K. was saying, when she hears these Dhamma readings, she feels uh, very spiritual. Um, so exactly that sort of pleasant feeling of, yes, this is good, this is wonderful. Um, <clears throat> so Venerable Analio speaks about the... the skillful use of uh, pleasant uh, uh, feelings and the importance of joy in the practice. This does not mean that all pleasant feelings have simply to be avoided. In fact, the realization that pleasant feelings are not simply to be shunned was a direct outcome of the Buddha's own quest for liberation. On the eve of his awakening, the Buddha had exhausted the traditional approaches to realization without gaining awakening. While recollecting his past experiences and considering what approach might constitute an alternative, he remembered a time in his early youth when he experienced deep concentration and pleasure, having attained the first absorption, the first jhana. Reflecting further on this experience, he came to the conclusion that the type of pleasure experienced then was not unwholesome, and therefore not an obstacle to progress. So, and up until that time, the general understanding in the spiritual field is all pleasure is bad and dangerous and is to be avoided, and that um, an unpleasant feeling, uh, dukkha, is a, the, the more dukkha experienced, the more you're burning off your bad karma. And so feeling dukkha is good and pleasure is, is bad. That's a sort of rough synopsis of the spiritual landscape the Buddha was operating in. The realization that the pleasure of, of absorption constitutes a wholesome and advisable type of pleasant feeling marked a decisive turning point in his quest. Based on this crucial understanding, the Buddha was soon able to break through to awakening, which earlier, in spite of considerable concentrative attempt, attainments and a variety of ascetic practices, he had been unable to achieve. After his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. Uh, this statement clearly shows uh, that, unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and his delight. So, so again, that's in the Diga Nikaya as well, that quote. In a similar vein, the verses composed by awakened monks and nuns often extol the happiness of freedom gained through the successful practice of the path. There's numerous, numerous uh, of the verses from the Terigata, Terigata um, that express that kind of joy and uh, delight as a result of awakening. The presence of delight and non-sensual joy among the awakened disciples of the Buddha uh, often found its expression in poetic descriptions of natural beauty. Indeed, the early Buddhist monks delighted in their way of life, as testified by a visiting king who described them as, quote, smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, and plainly delighting, 
living at ease and unruffled. And then it also says, with minds like the wild deer. Uh, this description forms part of a comparison made by the king between the followers of the Buddha and other ascetics, whose demeanor was comparatively gloomy. And they come across as their skin, kind of sallow veins standing out all over their, uh, all over their body and kind of hangdog and depressed. Of course, it's all, again, a certain amount of editing has probably been <laughs> introduced, but uh, that's the, also the, the description of a, of a visiting, uh, a visitor to the monastery. And, and uh, King Persenity, I believe, asked, why is it that, uh, that uh, your monastic disciples, they, they have uh, this uh, brightness and cheerfulness and uh, uh, plainly <coughs> delighting, and the, yeah, as followers of other sects uh, that are kind of, depressed with uh, and uh, sallow and with veins standing out all over their bodies and then the buddha's response if i remember correctly says because they do not dwell in the past they do not dwell in the present and they do not produce uh, deluded views about the self here in the in, in the present moment that is why they are that is why they are joyful <coughs> this description forms part of a comparison made by the king uh, between the followers of the Buddha and other ascetics. To him, the degree of joy exhibited by the Buddha's disciples corroborated the appropriateness of the Buddha's teaching. These passages document the significant role of non-sensual joy in the life of the early Buddhist monastic community. The skillful development of non-sensual joy and happiness was an outcome of the Buddha's first-hand realization, which had shown him the need to differentiate between wholesome and unwholesome types of pleasure. So, if you remember uh, that um, you know, worldly pleasant feeling and unworldly pleasant feeling, uh, 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 worldly painful feeling and un unworldly painful feeling, and so on, that was mentioned yesterday. The Satipatthana instructions for contemplating feelings reflect this wisdom by distinguishing between worldly and unworldly types of pleasant feelings. So, uh, samisa is the worldly uh, pleasant feeling and niramisa is the um, uh, the unworldly the ingenuity of the buddha's approach was not only his ability to discriminate between forms of happiness and pleasure which are to be pursued and those which are to be avoided but also his skillful harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for progress along the path to realization Numerous discourses describe the conditional dependence of wisdom and realization on the presence of nonsensual joy and happiness. According to these descriptions, based on the presence of delight, pamoja, joy, piti, and happiness, sukha, arise and lead in a causal sequence to concentration and realization. One discourse compares the dynamics of this causal sequence to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop, gradually filling the streams and rivers and finally flowing down to the sea. And that sutta is uh, it's called Proximal Cause, and that's in the um, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, section number 12, sutta number 23. And that uh, is also known as uh, Transcendent Dependent Arising. In that particular sutta, it starts off with the usual sequence of uh, of ignorance at the beginning of dependent origination and going up through the, the 12 links up to from craving, clinging, um, becoming, birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, uh, dukkha. But then dukkha gives rise to faith, to sadha, which is interesting because uh, uh, like a, uh, it says that is the proximal cause for faith is the experience of dukkha. And that, that might be strange, but uh, the Buddha also said Dukkha ripens in two ways, either in more dukkha, like going around the wheel of becoming, or it ripens in search, which is the mind saying, there must be a way out of here. There, there must be an alternative to this now. What is the alternative? So suffering ripens in two ways, either in more dukkha or in search. And so then that faith gives rise to, to uh, pamoja, to delight, and then to, uh, to uh, piti, to rapture, and to happiness. And then it leads on from happiness to concentration and concentration to knowledge and vision of the way things are, uh, yata bhutang jnana dasanam. And then from uh, knowledge and vision, it leads to uh, dispassion, detachment, and 
to liberation. So then along the way, that, uh, <clears throat> that those qualities of concentration and insight are based on the experiences of, of delight and joy and happiness. Pamoja, piti and sukha. And then he gives the image of the rain falling on the hilltops and then forming to small streams and larger streams and rivers and the great rivers flowing to the ocean that one thing leads to another, to another, to another. So that uh, with the rain falling on the mountain as the original cause then eventually the, the water flows to the sea. Once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen their presence will lead naturally to concentration and realization. Conversely, without gladdening the mind when it needs to be gladdened Realization will not be possible. The importance of developing nonsensual joy is also reflected in the Aranavibhanga Sutta, where the Buddha encouraged his disciples to find out what really constitutes true happiness and, based on this understanding, to pursue it. This passage refers in particular to the experience of absorption, jhana, which leads to a form of happiness that far surpasses its worldly counterparts. Alternatively, non-sensual pleasure can also arise in the context of insight meditation. A close examination of the Kandaraka Sutta, and that's uh, in the Middle Length Discourses, uh, Sutta number 51, uh, which talks a lot about the, the whole of the Kandaraka Sutta is a, about the development of, of happiness and uh, the relationship to, to you know, painful feeling and, and transcending uh, that and the, the role of happiness in, in, the, in the practice. A close examination of the Kandaraka Sutta brings to light a progressive refinement of non-sensual happiness taking place during the successive stages of the gradual training. The first levels of this ascending series are the forms of happiness that arise owing to blamelessness and contentment. So like keeping the sila and living in a skillful way. <clears throat> These in turn lead to the different levels of happiness gained through deep concentration, the blissful feelings that come from uh, the concentrated mind. And then the culmination of the series comes with the supreme happiness of complete freedom through realization. And so that uh, Sutta number 51, if you want to look that up, in the Kandaraka Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. The important role of non-sensual joy is also reflected in the Abhidhamic survey of states of mind. Uh, out of the entire scheme of 121 states of mind listed in the Abhidhamma, the majority are accompanied by mental joy, while only three are associated with mental displeasure. It's an kind of interesting statistic. You might feel it's more than that. <laughs> well, my three are really strong, Ajahn. You, you haven't met them. But anyway, this suggests that the Abhidharma places great emphasis on the role and importance of joy. The Abhidharmic scheme of states of mind has moreover kept a special place for the smile of an arahant. Somewhat surprisingly, it occurs among a set of so-called rootless uh, and inoperative states of mind, ahetu and akiriya. These states of mind are neither rooted in wholesome or unwholesome qualities, nor related to the operation of karma. Out of this particular group of states of mind, only one is accompanied by joy, the smile of the Arahant. The unique quality of this smile was apparently sufficient ground for the Abhidhamma to allot it a special place within its scheme. I'm not an expert I, or even a, an amateur in terms of the Abhidhamma, but this was a, a, something I knew that it does, it's got its own, the smile of the Arahant has its own special category. It's the, uh, called the Hasitupada Chitta. And um, that it's a it's got its own little sort of subsection of the smile of the arahant, uh, and uh, because it's mentioned a few times in the scriptures that uh, you know the Buddha smiles, arahants smile, uh, Mughalana smiles, and so they in their matrix of related qualities in the Abhidharma they had to find a way of of um, of bringing it in, and they, they I guess to make it all fit together neatly they had to create a special category for the the smile of the arahant. Extrapolating from the above, the entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy, So, particularly speaking about the Kandaraka Sutta. To balance out this picture, it should be added that progress along the path invariably involves unpleasant experiences as well. 
Guck mal, wie man anders ist. Ich nenne das Suffering, das führt zu dem Ende des Suffering. However, just as the Buddha did not recommend the avoidance of all pleasant feelings, but emphasized their wise understanding and intelligent use, so his position regarding unpleasant feelings and experiences was clearly oriented towards the development of wisdom. And that leads into the next section, which is called unpleasant feeling. Any questions, comments, reflections? Any? Inside of most we have sort of the inner Donald Trump, you know? Um, Horrifying thought. Yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my humble opinion. And as you said, before um, we had the thought that's happened, you could almost say he was drunk, you know? He's got it. He's jumped in and that section has risen inside of it. Now we're faced with a quandary, aren't we? As you know, as practitioners. Um, one is, you know, aversion or not good enough. Um, perhaps I hope that arise in me. And balance on the other side seems to be um, as Rand Gass said, often what happens with a lot of holy people who sort of have holy aspirations, they can become the holy family, you know, they say it's not there. That doesn't happen to me, I'm a holy person. I can't it's not real dislike. Not real dislike, but, you know, it's, that, it's just angry Buddha. Angry Buddha, yeah. But, you know, it's that denial that these feelings even exist. Yes. Yeah. It's called level. spiritual bypassing as well. Bypassing. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got this very fine line. Which, which is the line, or even, even aspirations to, not, to go over each line is probably a view, isn't it? It's, it's, what do we do then? The middle way. <laughs> the middle way. The middle way is exactly that. It's uh, uh, honestly uh, acknowledging what is present, but not uh, uh, so being being truthful. Such a you know the such a paramita is honesty. Being honest about what is present, but not being identified with it either. So seeing that that that. That those qualities might be might be there, um, but also seeing that they that they don't have to be identified with that, as the the, the Buddha describes in that Anatalakana Sutta to inquire, you know, is is this me? Is this what I am? Is this myself? Etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata. You know, is this really who and what I am? Is this me? Is this mine? And then that opening things up using the, the capacity to see and to know, to explore, to open it up, and then to awaken that insight, oh, there is that quality, but um, uh, yes, and that, that's, uh, it's uh, maybe an unskillful impulse to fear or to hate something in ourselves or in someone else, but to, that which knows fear and hatred is not afraid and is not, is not hating. That's why the, you know, the Buddha is a refuge. So that the development of, of the Buddha refuge is that recognizing, oh, that this is fearing, this is hating, this is, this is the mind reacting with, uh, with irritation or, or disgust, blaming. But that which knows blaming is, is, is not blaming. <laughs> so that's what we say, say, taking refuge in the Buddha, this is one of the the main themes of the forest tradition and, and uh, Lumpur Cha's teaching, uh, in particular, that 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 Buddha, the one who know, that which knows the Puru, the 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 Buddha, which is a refuge, is that very quality that knows. Here is hating. Here is you hear the word Trump, and then a reaction happens. <laughs> it, back in in the, when I was living in the states, you know, when George Bush was the uh, George W. Bush was the uh, the president. Uh, he had a similar role in people's consciousness. <laughs> the kind of liberal lefty types that go along on meditation retreats and come to Dharma talks. And so, I, as a practice, and he was known as W. Like his, George, his father was George Bush, and he was George W. Bush. So he was just known as W. Right, you probably knew that. 
And so I would get people just to meditate on, on W. And how, this is notice how the, the letter W just used to be an ordinary innocent member of the alphabet. And now it's loaded with this emotional sort of reaction. But it, uh, can, one, can one use that as a meditation object, just to think the word W and see what the mind does with it? And then to watch that reaction happening, because that which is watching the reaction is not, is not identified with it, it's not caught in it. That's why we practice, so that first of all you can't, you can't outpace the, the, the reactive process. You know, it's like you see you know, an object is coming towards you at speed, your, your head moves out of the way before you've even thought, oh, something is coming towards me. You know? You, you you dodge out of the way, and then your mind says, "Oh, that's just a, a, a snowflake, Amaro. Don't. <laughs> it's not dangerous." But that instinctual reaction happens before thought, before perception. So it, it's a fast and deeply ingrained process. But the more we practice, the more that the, that quality of mindfulness can be brought to bear earlier and earlier in the in the reactive process, and the more that we can know that, then the more free the heart is. That's why the dwelling in the present moment, they, they do not dwell on the past, they do not uh, create ideas about the future, they don't uh, <clears throat> uh, create deluded views about the self here in the present moment, therefore they are radiant. <laughs> that's, that's how the heart frees itself, not dwelling on the past or the future, not creating ideas about the self in the present. Okay, so painful feelings tomorrow. <laughs>